This is Corolla Digital. Hey, you guys, it's me, Allison. I just want to say thank you so much for listening. If you like what you're hearing, which, let's face it, you do, tell a friend. You can listen to us all sorts of places. A couple of them would be iTunes or AllisonRosen.com. This episode is brought to you by LegalZoom.com. Visit LegalZoom.com to save on your legal needs like wills for $69, LLCs for $99 plus filing fees, and also get access to a network of legal plan attorneys for guidance. LegalZoom is not a law firm but provides self-help services at your specific Direction. Enter discount code Allison for more savings at LegalZoom. That's discount code Allison. Introducing a breakthrough in cat litter from Arm & Hammer. Arm & Hammer Clump & Seal is totally different than what I've used before. Even after seven days, it was odor-free. There was some sort of sealing magic happening. Only Clump & Seal forms a tight seal around odor and destroys it with unique Arm & Hammer odor eliminators and baking soda for a seven-day odor-free home guaranteed. I've tried every product. This is really pretty remarkable. New Clump and Seal Cat Litter. Seven-day odor-free home guaranteed. Look on the package for $3 off. Hey everyone. Hi. Hello. It is me, Allison Rosen, and I am sitting here with none other than David Wilde. Hello. It's an honor to be here even as a substitute star guest. Well, just so everyone no, not so so everyone knows, but also so you know, I mentioned Gary a while ago. We should get David Wilde on the show. You can't and just get I, David Wilde. And when I emailed you, I said I've been meaning to book you for a few days now, but this just so happens. And would it be convenient for you since you'll already be at the building? It is the tradition of my people to try to deprecate as a way of making myself seem more important, as you should know. I do. Since, you, since you were 16, you should know <laughs> that that's what we do, of course. I'm Thank honored you. to be here, and I always felt wanted here. I mean, don't get too too much of a big head. Exactly. Yeah. Although, <laughs> although Allison Rosen is your new best friend, thinking about it, it is sort of putting everyone in the friend zone. It is – even before you were engaged, it is a mm-hmm. way of saying – I'm your right. friend yeah. and nothing more. Yeah. It's my way of saying Allison Rosen won't have sex with you. Exactly. That's a good show title. That's – I should start like a nighttime show called Maybe Allison once you get Rosen. married, Allison <laughs> Rosen probably won't put out for you. I have way too many of those kind of friends though. <laughs> I feel like Daniel would be like, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean I feel like – anyway, revealing too much. So, I mean before we even married too, what's going on? But anyway, what I wanted to say was – David Wilde, I know you from – well, I knew of you for years and years and years before I met you in person because I used to write for music magazines and I would see your name repeatedly. But then I feel like I've gotten to know you from you coming in and doing your weekly spot on the Adam Carolla show. But I feel like I don't really know the man behind the man. There sadly <laughs> is no man. awful. Yeah, there's a girl behind the man. <laughs> there's a little quivering Jewish girl behind the man you know as David Wilde. And is that That's you? Me. That's me. Okay, yeah. great. So I want to know so many things. I want I want to know how you got involved in the whole Adam Carolla universe. But first, I just want to know where were you born and, and what was your family like and how did you start writing? I was born in uh, New York City in a since-condemned hospital. And I'm never quite sure if it was condemned as a direct result or <laughs> if there were other contributing factors. French hospital in New York. Um, and I grew up in the village for a few weeks and then – I think I was the cause, being the second child 
of my family moving the ultimate sacrifice from the village to New Jersey. Oh, wow. Uh, so I grew up in Tenafly, New Jersey, which is the whitest town in history ever to have been the title of a show about a black cop. Because <laughs> right after Superfly was like a big like sort of detective black exploitation film, mm-hmm. some producer, some rich Jewish producer, no doubt, was driving past the sign in 9W in New Jersey and said, Tenafly, that'll be a show about a black cop. And at that point, there was no one black in Tenafly mm-hmm. other than George Benson, who, when he had a hit song, he moved down the block from Right. Him. Not to be confused with Mayor Benson. No, Benson, or, or the show Benson. Yeah, that, that he was a mayor on the yes. show, wasn't he? Uh, I thought he was a sort of, wasn't he sort of an attache to the... Oh, was he? All I know is that Benson was a very big influence on our mutual friend, CeeLo Green. That's right. Because he didn't really have a dad, but he watched TV and he sort of modeled himself on Benson. Someone's going to have to look this up. Gary, could you find out what Benson's uh, job was on the show Benson? Which I bet they, being young, being younger than shit, they've never heard of Benson, have they? Well, for the and for the listeners who don't, because some of my listeners also not bastards, little yeah, bastards. they're young. Um, Benson featured, I think it was Missy Gold, who was Tracy Gold from Growing Pains' sister. And if you don't know what who, what Growing Pains is, then you're too <laughs> too Fuck young. You. That's right. So and Robert Guillaume. Let's not forget Benson was I mean, Robert yeah, Guillaume, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess that's important. It's no, it's the most important. important. And don't confuse Sam Jackson with Robert Guillaume, or else. You'll get in big trouble. Like I, Sam I mean, I never would. Yes, but Sam Rubin might. Right. Okay, so you grew up in Tenafly, but I like that you mentioned that for cred that for a few weeks you lived in the village. It's sort of like how I like to say that I was born in Oakland, which I was, but we moved down to Orange County before I was even a year old. So No, no, I lived in Jersey, I'm, and I'm actually sort of proud because I take shit from my wife who grew up here in California in Orange County near you. And my kids, who have learned from her to mock New Jersey, <laughs> the ultimate example of being, you know, being from Jersey, it's it's not easy. And I was on a team tour of Israel. Imagine that you would never think a Nordic god of my nature right. would do this. But I'm surprised I, they let you in. Exactly, I was fascinated <laughs> by the Jewish people, so I went. What, you were? Oh, oh, I mean, I realize you're making a joke, but is that was just something that Jewish kids on the East Coast Always did, right? Did, yeah, no, no. Did, that, did you have to? Yeah, by law, it was legally required. <laughs> it was actually the non-Jewish government would make you leave New Jersey to do this. Right. But I remember being in the Sinai, like literally in the desert, stopping at a place where a guy made bread on camel dung in a hut and the guy spoke the a little English was... like ca- uh, camel shit baked yeah. bread over camel shit okay and we were as kids I'm like 11 or 12 or whatever it is and the guy uh, who was serving us spoke English and goes where are you from and uh, I said New York he goes where New York I said well actually New Jersey he went New Jersey <laughs> and I realized <laughs> a guy serving camel dung bread mm-hmm. in a hut without electricity Still, we'll make a Jersey joke. So I, I embrace it. Yeah, Gary has found out what Benson did. Benson was hired as uh, head of household affairs for a governor. It doesn't say; oh. it's never really revealed what state. But throughout the course of the series, he worked his way up from that to state budget director, which is when his last name was revealed, and eventually lieutenant governor. If you saw the show, it was a state of confusion. <laughs> Because hijinks <laughs> nice, ensued. Nice. That's why you wrote the Beatles thing and a lot of other things. That's that's why. Um, so he was kind of like the Mr. Belvedere for that office, but and then he went on to. That's kind of how it reads. Yeah. Yeah. Have hold a, a more important title. Not that there's anything not important about Mr. Belvedere. No, absolutely not. Okay, so so I'm in teen Jersey. tour yes. Jersey. What do your parents do? 
uh, my dad was a uh, sort of sales marketing god in the cosmetic beauty industry. Ironically, we were not a beautiful people, but we were uh, we flourished based on the beauty cosmetic industry. And like as a kid, I grew up around Makeup. all the, what's all the hair like. I actually had, believe it or not, enough great hair that as a nine, ten year old, I was a hair model for like Vidal Sassoon at like hair wow. shows. And my dad was like a rock star in the cosmetic beauty industry. And I remember like going to some convention in like 72 and like Bobby Rydell, who was already like a faded 50s star, sang The Wild One. Like the light came on our table <laughs> and he sang The Wild One, you know, like about my dad. And I remember going, and he also, I think, probably started my name dropping, my career in name dropping because he would fly first class, I guess, uh, my whole childhood and travel constantly. And he would always make these celebrities come out and meet me because I would – he traveled so much that he would have us come meet him at the airport so we could have time with him, which was sweet actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But I met like almost every one of my sports heroes and like he dragged these people out and said, meet my kid. So what did he do? Um, Gary, can you turn the clock on? What did he do in the cosmetics world? He was the president of a company called The Wild Company and he was a really great charismatic uh, guy. I, you know – I've been thinking about him all day because uh, he died a few years ago. And uh, when the show aired, the Beatles show aired, I don't know when you'll hear this, but they it aired last they'll night. They'll hear this on Monday. So oh, it's not that far. Yeah. So uh, the the Beatles tribute aired the other night. And I uh, I heard from an estranged relative because there was some issues, uh, someone I hadn't talked to in years. Does every family have that? Because mine yes, does. Uh, yeah. everyone does. And he really wrote me this. This first email I got was from this. And nothing personally, just our two sides of, uh, you know, yeah. marriages and things. Uh, but he uh, he wrote me and said, your dad is in heaven, like, laughing and crying at how great this show is or something. And I, I was like, wow, that was like I least expected email. You know, and then I got a tweet from Rita Wilson that was nice. And I'm like, that's a perfect combination of heartfelt and celebrity <laughs> Tweet that I I need that both in my life. Right. So for anyone who doesn't know, you wrote the what was the full title of the show? You know what? No one agrees. It's it's like I think it was technically the Night to Change America Grammy Salute to the Beatles, or as we insisted it be the Beatles Night to Change America Grammy Salute. Uh, It's one of those things that was negotiated. Everyone else called it hashtag Grammy uh, Beatles fifty because it was held on the exact fiftieth anniversary of the Ed Sullivan Show, Mm -hmm. and it was done. The night after the Grammys, which is every every year, that's like the most we pour our hearts and souls into making that show work. So then to get up the next morning and do a Beatles show was like it was actually a thrill because it was like usually you get kind of let down. I don't know if you find this after you do something you're excited about, you wake up the next morning, it's like, is that all there is? <laughs> yes. But it, I, it could it couldn't go to sleep. I had to go <laughs> get up and you know hang out with the you know the two Beatles. So that was good. That is the is that all there is sort of let down feeling is always so bittersweet because when you're in the well for me at least when I'm in the midst of rushing around doing the crazy right. thing I'm like oh I can't wait till I have a moment to just catch my breath. You think. Yeah, and then when you catch your breath there's that that kind of melancholy that sets in. Well, there's actually in TV in the my weird world which is a lot of these big TV events like right now I'm working on the Oscar red carpet show and it just feels like my life is going from event to event but what you have is there's a couple Weird factors. You have what's called show love, which is the night after every – the night of every show virtually. 
uh, everyone thinks it's the greatest show of all time. You need just having stayed up all night getting trying to get it done. You everyone thinks, oh, we're going to be number one. Mm-hmm. We're going to be a new series. You know, it's going to be really well reviewed. And then you wake up the next morning, and the first thing is around seven thirty. If it's great ratings, you hear, and if not, it's like eight thirty or eight forty when you read it, and you go, oh shit, and it's like. <laughs> And it's very interesting. Like last night, truthfully, I don't think there was an expectation opposite the Olympics and opposite Walking Dead that even though it's the Beatles, it's a – it was not like a show that anyone – I don't think it was expected to do as well as it did. That's why it's re-airing. Uh, and that's really great. But like you've had – I've had the opposite experience. Like – and not just ratings but reviews. Like <laughs> the worst show love I ever had was on the Oscars with James Franco and uh, – uh, Anne Hathaway, because I remember, you know, by the end of the night, I convinced myself, oh, we'll be okay, we'll be okay, right? you know, mm-hmm. and I called my wife, who didn't come that year, and I said, so we'll survive, and she went, oh, you you think so? Okay, <laughs> and I was like, oh, shit, we are big trouble, big trouble, and then, you know, you wake up and you, and actually the reviews, the ratings weren't bad that year, but you feel the reviews the pain. weren't 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 you positive. Just, weren't kind. Weren't kind. How much does that affect you? I mean, uh, how much do you do you hang on on the reviews and things and ratings? In my world, you know, part of the thing is I have shows that I do for years. You don't want to give people reason not to bring you back if you love doing that show. So those things matter. Now, you know, I've been doing the Grammys for fourteen years or whatever it is, and but there were things like the Emmys, which, like, I was also there for, you know, great Emmys with Conan, great Emmys with Neil Patrick Harris, great Emmys, a lot of them. Jimmy Fallon, which was an amazing one, which I think actually helped him set up to have his show. But I was also there the year that we had the five reality hosts. <laughs> and that was a feeling – that's the only time I ever – from the moment the show began, I was like – I should not count on being busy a year from now <laughs> because I will not get that call. How did – what was it that made you <clears throat> aware? It The show – the host took over the show. They actually – and it's funny. I run into Ryan Seacrest and we're friendly and uh, run into uh, Jeff from – Probst. Jeff Probst. Who, who, actually, are the, who are the other ones? Do you remember? Uh, Howie Mandel, Heidi Klum. Uh, uh, yeah, you know, it's burned in my consciousness, the whole thing. Oh, and the guy Tom from uh, – Dancing with the Stars. Bergeron? Uh, Tom Bergeron. Yeah. Or, uh, in any case, what happens is it's a big mistake to have multiple hosts because they can get together and steal the show away from you. And they literally didn't want anything that any of us pitched them for an open, and they wanted to improv improv their open. Now, Harry Mandel is a comedian, but the rest of them weren't, and – that was a very bad decision. Why? Why? Why did they decide to do that? Is it because they're uncomfortable reading off a prompter? You know, it's just trying to get five people to agree to anything <laughs> is very difficult. And with the comedy, it's hard. I believe. I could be wrong. I have a vague memory. I think Judd Apatow even pitched them something. I pitched them something that – and again, I'm not always right, clearly. But there was one thing I knew would work and they didn't want to do it. So they improv and it died the most horrible death, followed by <laughs> – the worst – the first presenter was Jeremy Piven who immediately ripped them a new one live <laughs> on the stage, mocking them for the open. Not only that, they – the non-comedians improv has the bad effect of 
they stayed out there waiting for a laugh. Oh, God. So it kept it, – we were like four minutes over, and I had to go to all sorts of really funny people we had written funny bits for. I remember Neil Patrick Harris saying – you know, I had written something and he called me and said, that's great. I love it. So I can't wait to do it. And I had to say, I'm sorry, that's cut. And it was just painful. It was all night ripping up the show. And mm. so there was not a lot of show love that night. So like how, for how many days were you, dep- were you depressed after that? Yes, that, I was actually pretty depressed. Ironically, somehow, uh, the show, they switched producer, executive producer, and I was hired back the next year. And we did one of the best shows ever. I think it was with... Uh, Jimmy Fallon, I believe, and it was you know a smash. Uh, so somehow I did, I survived that. Well, that's nice. As the so your title on these things is head writer, is that right? Moyle, <laughs> uh, under rabbinical supervision of no, it's yeah usually writer. R- writer. I also produce some things, but uh, this is generally what I'm I was going to say is I. As the writer of it, I'm wondering if it's more the producers whose necks are on the line, like if, if they're the ones who are going to be canned if it doesn't go well, as opposed to you. Yes, there, but that's kind of. But nice. usually, it's like there's little camps. So certain producers have certain writers they work with constantly. So often the show will go away and you'll go away, and it it hurts. No, I mean no one wants to get brutalized, and yeah. it's funny. Like you know, there's an industry, and you've been you've seen this. When I started out in journalism, you're younger, but even 10 years ago or 15 years ago for sure, when you would write in a magazine, you maybe got an angry letter in the mail like two weeks later. But now anything you put out there is instantly Instant. ripped apart. And you know, I did this movie uh, as an executive producer called Celebrity. And the greatest quote I ever heard was – and I interviewed Kid Rock for it. He was one of the people. And he said, if Jesus Christ himself came back to earth and – you know, and and made a statement. The first comment on the board message board would be, "Jesus is a fucking douchebag," <laughs> and that's where we're at as a culture. Is that you're going to get ripped? In fact, I wrote something kind of deeply personal on Huffington Post the other day about the Beatles. Just wanting to get, I woke up in like 20 minutes, just sort of put it out there, and it was kind of emotional because it had it talked about my dad and my family a little bit, and my wife and how I met her. And I remember thinking, I am going to get. And I showed it to my wife beforehand and my son, my only two people I showed it to. And my wife was like, yeah, you're going to get – someone's going to make fun of you, but I like it. And there hasn't been. Now there will be. (laughs) But there was nothing negative. It was like nothing but people were touched. And I – Good. That's sort of what – in my weird world of TV, what I like to do is, you know, because I'm not the main deal. I'm the stuff in between the stuff you love. But I try to put either a joke or some human emotion because I think – A, that's what in TV or in life, and if you're writing a speech, this is my advice, a laugh makes people end their march towards boredom. (laughs) It's like anytime you – it's like like putting – giving them a glass of water. It just wakes people up. People are nodding off in all – no matter where people are speaking. So if you can get a laugh or make them, you know, tear up, then they feel something and they stop wanting whatever you're you're doing to end. Mm -hmm. So – I'm wondering how you switched from uh, magazine writing primarily to television writing, but actually, let's go back and just how did you get into journalism? I got completely lucky. I wrote from my middle school paper, Tenafly Middle Tenafly Middle School. I did an article. I did a record column called "I Think David and David Picked the Hits" with a guy named David Klein, who I wrote about in this Huffington Post thing. He was actually it all came full circle. One of my one of my first Rolling Stone cover stories was Winona Ryder. 
And Winona Ryder, when I met her, said, I know you. And I went, what do you mean? She goes, my cousin David Klein always said, my best friend is David Wilde. And so my whole – she goes, oh. she had a little songs about David Wilde. She thought the name was funny before she met me. That was a weird one. That's weird. Uh, but in any case – I wrote with David a record column in middle school. And so you were into music young? Completely. It was baseball until I was like 11 and then all music all the time. I never did drugs really or anything because I spent all my money on music. I was but you obsessed. didn't do drugs really? I've only <laughs> done drugs for professional reasons when I was forced to by bands. That's literally true. I've only gotten high when a band member would say, if you don't smoke this joint – you have to leave the room, thinking that then I wouldn't mention that they were high. But that's not true. I, I would still mention it. Yeah. What made them think that? They're idiots. <laughs> Do you say who? That was the other guys in Skid Row besides Sebastian who I brought in here who I love. Uh, so, yeah, that was actually that, – I remember that. I was on the road with Guns N' Roses and uh, Sebastian for a long time. I loved – I love that guy. Mm-hmm. Now, were you worried that getting high would uh... – would make it so you couldn't really record what was happening? That would be my fear. I don't think I ever really got high. I think I was like Bill Clinton. I know people thought that was bullshit. I don't think I ever inhaled correctly. I never liked Well, the pr- first time you get high, it takes a lot to get you high. So yeah. I've only been, I did mushrooms. Some band member, I won't say who, slipped me some mushroom once. And that was good. Slipped you, <laughs> but you knew? I, I, don't, I don't think I knew. Oh. and I, I would be pissed. And it was trippy. That's the only time I've ever been altered state and it's mm-hmm. funny because and you weren't upset with this band you were just happy they opened your mind they opened my mind yeah exactly uh no i i don't have an interest in it and it's funny because i spent my life around a lot of it and i actually am kind of uh naive i'm still naive at my age i was a uh, ll cool j who i love who adam sometimes has fun with to put him on what was it the uh black history month uh special show mm-hmm. or whatever uh LL had me invited me into the studio to write some liner notes for him like last year, I think it was. And uh, I walked in and at first I heard some guitar. I went, man, why is he playing Van Halen? And I walked in. It was Eddie Van Halen and he were writing a song together. But I noticed – and I knew Eddie very well from when he was you know, not so together. And he was smoking this thing with fumes. And I'm like, oh my god, what is this? You know, I thought this is some drug. <laughs> I, I don't even know what drug is happening. <laughs> right. And I'm uncomfortable. And I can't believe LL is comfortable with it because he's kind of a very wholesome guy. It turns out it was those fake cigarette the things. The e-cigs, yeah. I'd never, I didn't even know what that was. And I thought, is this the new heroin? This? <laughs> I, I didn't That's even cute. know. So, okay, when you, when you were slipped mushrooms, how did that go? And at what point did you realize you were altered and in that state where you able you were able to like understand that this is what had happened to you? I've never done mushrooms, hence my not knowing like how much it actually fucks I, you up. I hate to be on the radio or the podcast world. I, I am the least druggy person. I just know that was the only time I ever experienced this joyous, you know, experience that oh, people speak of. The only of. time you ever experienced joy. No, no, I experience joy <laughs> constantly. Right now I am experiencing joy. Thank you, David Wilde. Um but wait, you sorry the, that sort of exuberance. Yeah, no, I thought it was uh, that was the only. I, I spent a lot of time talking with people about drugs my whole career because I I came into Rolling Stone in '86, so I got everyone during the rehab years. So <laughs> like I I know Steven Tyler really well. He's actually at uh, Wild About Music. He's now my uh, photo. Is, is the oh, two of us? Nice um, from the Grammys. Uh, but like I knew him during. I know everyone post rehab. Ringo, I met. Three weeks after he cleaned up his act and went on the tour in the uh, 88 or 89, 
and I've known him ever since. So, you know, and he'll tell me, you know, the story. So I, there's a lot of people like that who I know after the mm-hmm. craziness. Okay, so you were a kid who was super into music. You wrote reviews with David Klein, yes, Winona Ryder's cousin, yes. Uh, and then, then where did it go from there? Uh, I worked for my Cornell Daily Sun. I went to Cornell, and from my freshman year on, I became the arts editor of the paper, and that was where I learned everything. The best thing, if anyone wants to know who's if you're if you have a younger relative, work for your school papers. It's like you can learn. On a daily college paper, I learned everything that I do now, and I was probably more professional then. And uh, I got very lucky because a professor at Cornell, visiting professor, uh, creative writing, he's a guy named William Kennedy. The year I was with him, he came out – he had written a novel earlier, but, uh, you know, he – it finally came out. Saul Bellow got behind him, the great author, and he wrote a book called Ironweed and won the Pulitzer right as I was studying with him. That's the only reason I have a career. I don't think I would have had much of a career if if it hadn't been for him getting that award because he basically called Esquire and told them, this is a talented guy. Hire him. And did they you, did. Did you ask him to do this? Yeah. What had happened was I'd been an intern like during the summer for a magazine called The Movies. Uh, and a guy named David Hershey, who is uh, a big editor in New York now for HarperCollins, he went to Esquire and he called me saying – I called him saying – I want to work for you at Esquire. And he said, I want William Kennedy, who had just won the Pulitzer, to write for us. And so horse now I, trading. I horse traded my way into a career. <laughs> um, Thank and you, William Kennedy. Was it music that you wanted to write about at the time? Uh, I think I probably uh, – always that was my passion. And at Esquire, I started a record column. And that's really how I have a career because uh, I started a record column. And because Esquire had so much money and such – great access to any writer in the world. I literally was writing and editing with a woman named Lisa Bain. We were did a column with like people like Tom Wolfe wrote record reviews, John Updike, uh, John Waters. Anyone we asked would write a record review because it paid two bucks a word or whatever, yeah. three bucks a word. And uh, Jan Wenner heard about a guy at Esquire running a record column with this passion for music. And he tried to hire me away for Us Magazine. And I went in to meet with him, and Jan Wenner, my hero, I mean, the guy who started, you know, this sort of counterculture journalism, every, you know, the role model for everyone. Uh, Rolling Stone editor for, for founder, people who don't founder. know Benson, yeah. And uh, I walked in, and he goes, uh, I want you to work. After like 15 minutes, he goes, I want you to uh, be an editor at Us. And I told this guy who I clearly wanted to work. I said, I want to work for Rolling Stone. I said, with all due respect, I can't see leaving Esquire for us. Why did he want you at us? Because he had a vacancy oh. and he wanted to get someone, you know, who seemed to interesting to him. And so I basically said no. And he called me back like an hour later when I got back to Esquire and said, okay, then come to Rolling Stone. It was like the best no. It's like one of those things you have to, you have to be able to say no or else you don't get what you want sometimes. Was that a hard lesson to learn? or that, I that didn't innate? learn it. I did it that once, and then I've never done it. <laughs> it was one time I did something right. After that, I did nothing right. I mean, were you, were you tempted to go to Us magazine? It's actually an amazingly weird story because what happened years later, cut 15 years later, I'm out here, and I fell into this TV stuff. And all these – and it, that's a whole other story. But all these magazines uh, – all these TV shows started asking me to write TV shows, and then I was offered a job by a network. Uh, uh, a cable network wanted to hire me 
And they offered me like three times what I was making. And Jan, I, I called Jan to say, I'm going to leave. And he said, I'll equal what they are offering you. Wow. But, oh. <laughs> and here's the but. Generally, some people don't like when they have to double or triple your salary. So he said, but you have to write for Us Magazine too. And in the timing of things, that's when Us went from a uh, monthly or bi-monthly to weekly. And it went from one kind of magazine to another. It went from sort of a nice sort of plain Culture, nice celebrity magazine yeah. to more the celebrity you know, phenomena that it is. And so in truth, I ended up being told to just write for us. And in truth, it wasn't who I – am or was then, I couldn't write it. I'm not saying I didn't want... Oh, so you took that, that I, job. Well, I took the job writing for both, found myself being asked to just write for us, and after a few weeks of trying to write... Because they wanted, like, snarky, fizzy celeb copy? And write around kind of pieces. Not I, what My strength is... Is interviewing, right? Is interviewing. And actually, I wasn't that great at that. I, it's funny. I think I ended up doing exactly what I was supposed to do because... What I'm good at, if I can say, if I think I'm good at anything, it's that I'm good at listening to voices and then crafting something that fits that voice. That That's why I work so much in TV. It's not that I'm the funniest, clearly not. It's not that I'm the smartest, clearly not. But for some reason, I think uh, my wife would dispute it. I'm a good listener, <laughs> at least to celebrities, so that like, like on the uh, Beatles show last night, you know, Things like Dave Grohl did this introduction of a song. Now, I actually just did a Google search and realized he had spoken about the song he was doing. He'd written something for iTunes about it. So I basically adapted what he did and then shaped it into a more manipulative, emotional thing that would reference his daughter, not realizing that his daughter was going to be in the audience so that when you watch the show, it's really moving. Mm -hmm. And that's, again, you either want to get a laugh or you want to be moving people. You want to in some way connect with people, make them feel Something that's people turn on the TV, and that's my theory on it. They just fucking want to feel something. They they want to feel you know either suspense, which is not my thing. I don't watch a lot of that. They want to laugh. They want to feel there's a heart. I, I always think about the people who's watching the show. I remember the, I mean, probably the most important show I'll ever write was I was a head writer for that tribute to heroes after nine eleven, and I remember you know, and there was no time. We did it in like three or four days. Uh, and it was going to be on every network and, and all around the world. And I remember thinking, this show will be seen by, like, a young kid in a school in the Middle East who's going to be taught to hate America. <clears throat> so how do you write a show that will make them not hate America? And that actually was, like, my guiding principle. Is like, if you show <clears> – I'm <throat> sorry. It's okay. <clears throat> I'm not getting emotional, mind you. <laughs> Losing my voice. In any case, that's I, – I think about – what do people want? And on an award show, I think someone turning into an award show is wants some excitement. They clearly want some glamour and they want some humor and they just want to feel connection. And that's what – like on the Grammys, it's clearly not about my writing. But it's about <clears throat> linking all this different stuff and making it have a theme. Like uh, themes emerge out of anything you write. Like on the Beatles show, doing these little profiles of each Beatle, you realize – Man, their families and how that led to why they needed to be the Beatles. You know, these were guys that, you know, the greatest partnership of all time is two guys who lost their moms. Why? Because they needed to, they needed someone to look out for them mm -hmm. and to hear them. I always think about that. I think about it. It's, it's 
weird how you can see a movie and if it makes you cry, you walk out feeling like it was worth it. Like even if you didn't laugh at all. Like when I was young, there was this I think it was an HBO TV movie. I mentioned it before called Touched by Love. Right. Do, do you know about it? Yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. Oh, you do? Yes. You're the, like the only one. The only guy who would ever know. Yeah, that. with uh, Diane Lane mm-hmm. as a girl who had cerebral palsy. Um, the hottest girl who ever had cerebral that's palsy. That's right. And she uh, was in this home for for kids with disabilities and she didn't – she was uh, – catatonic she didn't talk to anyone and then this new nurse comes in and like wants to focus on her but they're saying you know don't focus on karen she'll break your heart um focus on kids who can really get something out of you focusing on them but then um she focuses on her anyway and they kind of bond and then uh, karen begins talking and uh like really falls in love with the music of elvis presley and starts writing him letters and he writes back and it actually is a true story it was based on a book called i think to elvis with love anyway spoiler alert at the end karen dies i watched this fucking thing over and over and over as a kid and i would cry every time it's like i just i don't know what that was because i also love stuff that was funny but it's like it's so there's some you get something out of pushing on these emotional bruises i think about there's a scene in freaks and geeks one of the greatest moments and i don't know if you watched freaks and geeks i didn't one of the greatest moments is like there's one of the characters goes home and is like latchkey kind of kid, single mom, and he just turns on the TV to watch the talk show where comedians are going on, and he goes from like bored and alone to joyous laughter. And I think about, I mean, I I actually like shows when I actually always think about when is this airing? Like if a show is airing on a Saturday night. I think about who's watching this. I'm thinking a lot of people who don't have a place to go on Saturday night, who probably don't to, have a yeah, date. Yeah, I used to always think about the shows that air on Friday night. Like who's watching right. on Friday? Yeah, same so thing. So I actually, will, believe it or not, will try to move things a little differently. I write a little more female sensitive <laughs> on Friday nights because that's who might be watching it. It just – and again, I, it's just an interesting I, – I, the Tribute to Heroes was the moment where I realized – as goofy as it is, or even like the Whitney Houston moment on the Grammys, mm-hmm. you realize TV is the closest thing we have to like uh, a church or a central town meeting hall where people in America feel connected. And it may be illusory that they're not really connected, but people want to feel connected. Like I spent enough time and you, despite your youthful appearance, you spent enough years not having like you know that significant another, right? Mm-hmm. Where you would yeah. go, go to an apartment or go to – Oh, house, sure. And you turn on the TV. Sometimes not... it's easier than hanging – sometimes it's easier to have that connection with the screen than with another human being. Absolutely. Well, that's what – think about with our kids. You know, your kids, I hope, and my kids, I think about that all the time because we'll sit at dinner and like God knows I'm tweeting yeah. and they're sitting there on their phones and it's like it's important. But yeah, people want connection. I mean I think that's why I loved the show Friends that you had a, a – uh, Seminal role in cataloging. Seminal. Friends. I had a seminal, seminal role. Seminal role. Yeah. Uh, having written more than one Friends book, is that? And I know this fully sounds fully two, fully two Friends. That's right. Friends. That's right. Um, <laughs> one and another one. Because um, there was so much more I needed to say. <laughs> I know that this is going to sound pathetic and loserish, but when you turn Friends on, you just don't feel alone anymore. Someone was really smart uh, when I was doing the first Friends book. They asked me to come up with titles. I think I've told you this story, but I, I came up with a million turns of phrase on Friends. And then they said, you know what we're going to call the book? Friends. <laughs> because you know why people watch a show? Because they want friends. Because 
And why do they want friends? Because their families are fucked up. Yeah. And if you talk to Marta Kaufman or David Crane, they'll tell you that, that yeah, their life's a joke. Your broker, right. love life's DOA. <laughs> exactly. I can't quote it like you can. Ironically, you should write the third Friends book. Okay. Okay. You're on. There is a need for that. Exactly. You know what else there's a need for? Advertising. That's right. LegalZoom. LegalZoom helps you incorporate or form an LLC with their simple questionnaire starting at just $99. Over 1 million entrepreneurs have done it. You could be the million and first. Uh, You can create a will starting at just $69 or even a living trust quickly and easily and get peace of mind and protection. No surprise fees, no hassles, no headaches. LegalZoom's step-by-step process was created by a team of experts in law and technology. LegalZoom is not a law firm but can connect you with a third-party attorney and provides you with self-help services. From wills to business formations, trademarks, powers of attorney, and more, go to LegalZoom.com. For even more savings, type Allison into the referral box at checkout. Don't put off the things you need to do. Go to LegalZoom.com now and use discount code Allison. That's LegalZoom.com, discount code Allison. Okay, so LegalZoom will be there for you, like friends. That's right. LegalZoom will be there for you. Thank you. Thank you, David Wilde. So put, to go put back, Allison in. Allison right, Rosen? Alice, just, just Allison. Allison. Just yeah. Allison. The, the discount code, Allison. Um, so to go back to something you were saying before, you were saying that you feel like your talent – um, if you had to choose just one, yes. that's not how you put it, but I'm going to put it that way for you, is listening to something in someone's voice and then being able to write in that voice. Is I'll that, give you an example. Like you're a celebrity yeah. charmer, well, tamer, exactly. whisperer. The whisperer, the celebrity whisperer. <laughs> you know, I remember the first time I was aware of it was one of the first shows I wrote was like the Blockbuster Awards. There's not only no longer a Blockbuster Awards. I don't, is there even a Blockbuster? Uh, I think there's a couple still open because it is a franchise. Okay. I feel like I, I heard that. But there's – um. Uh, one of the Southern comedians, Jeff uh, Foxworthy, Foxworthy was one of the first people I wrote for. And I wrote whatever it was like. Oh, it was actually People's Choice Awards. And he was giving out an award for best reality show. So I, knowing that his bit was you might be a redneck, redneck yeah. I wrote the obvious thing. You might be a reality fan <laughs> jokes. I wrote 10. And he looked at them and he goes, this is really weird. I go, why? He goes, Everyone tries to write for me and it always sucks. And these are good. And I thought, wow, maybe I can do that. And then like a few weeks later, I remember I think at the Grammys, Chris Rock was doing an intro for Red Hot Chili Peppers. And I wrote a dick joke because they were, you know, a sock and dick joke. And uh, Chris Rock very nicely said, man, this is the best dick joke I've seen in months or something like that. (laughs) And uh, I went, "Okay, that means I have range. And that's what I – I guess that, if anything, a lot of people are very – in fact, this is my advice to any writers and there's a lot of writers I'm sure who listen to this. Most people think they're only one kind of writer and I think that's bullshit. I think if you can write, which is not many people and unfortunately less and less, if you can write, write anything that you can get paid for. Write anything that stretches your ability to write. The best things I've ever done were the shows where I thought – I don't know if I can do that. Like Tribute to Heroes, it was, you know, 9-11, I got a call on, 9-11 was a Tuesday. I got a call on a Friday night. The show had to be on the next Friday night. And it was a Jewish holiday in the middle or something crazy like that. And I thought, I don't know if I can take on the responsibility. This is important. It's like I learned every time you feel like that, that's when you're going to do your best work because you're, you know, that idea of we only use a certain amount of our intelligence, I find that my job requires me to use as much as I have instantly. Because a lot of it is like people come as they're like walking on stage. your brain's like a flash drive. Yeah, it doesn't – I actually don't think I'm smart. 
but I get to my thought very quickly. That's what I think. Well, see, that's interesting because those things where I'm like, how the hell can I possibly do that? Well, my you do that. Instinct... You're with Adam Carolla. Now, I say to people, people say, why do you Go do on. No, no. Why do you do Adam Carolla's show? And I, because I don't, I know you were paid a king's ransom to do so. <laughs> oh, yeah. But in my case, I get nothing. I haven't even gotten a fucking man great. Will someone please tell him I need legal I could give Zoom? You a, a fucking man great? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> One you, you fucking grill? man great. Do you find grilling no, often? I just want you to just say want I have something. a man okay. great. No, I'm joking, sort of. Uh, <laughs> but. The best thing for me about going on here is there is no one who – if you can keep up with Adam and you and Brian have to do that and you do it very, very well, that's as hard a challenge as anything. I've, there's no one quicker. There's no one – you know, and there's no one who isn't you know, sort of less obviously encouraging. Like you know, in show, <laughs> there's a lot of people in show business who give you that smile and like mm-hmm. we're in this together. And they're, you know, they're super charming. Right. That's really not Adam's thing. No, actually, actually – Someone very close to this whole enterprise said to me, you do such a great job. And, you know, Adam's not the most – and he struggled for the word. He's a generous performer. And I knew what he meant, meaning you're really on your own. You, you, you got to be – you're on your own in there, even, even together. So, yeah. Well, no, no. Well, I think what's interesting to me is uh, – I, I, you know, I, in fact, when I first started coming on here, there was a message board. So I got to you know, hear some of the – Jesus is a fucking douchebag, except it wasn't Jesus. It was worse. Mm-hmm. It was uh, – and and then I sort of remember thinking, should I not speak when I come in there? And oh, then I realized, God. no, you know what? Adam wouldn't ask me in if he didn't want me to speak. Yeah, that'd and be like the worst even thing. if you have to push your way in, I think he respects when you do that. Uh, I could be wrong, but, you know, I – No, no, he does. Yeah. Every, everyone who comes in here should, should talk for yes. sure. Um but I guess what I mean is not that feeling of, oh, how am I going to possibly do this? I don't have the talent or anything. Um, but just that, I don't know, there are certain things that come up where it's like, well, like for me, you know, I used to get a lot of calls like at 6 a.m. Can you be on live TV at, you know, right. seven ten Which my first thought is that no. And then I would I would end up doing it. But things like that, as I've sort of gotten a little further in my career, I if it sounds just kind of impossible and really difficult, I don't always want to do it. But you're saying always do those things. I say always do it. Uh, and again, I don't. Not, I'm saying I'm I'm not a success story exactly. I oh, I feel I, like you are. I make a, a you know a good living doing weird, great things. And you know, there's times when I literally could not have been happier the last month. I mean, literally to work on the Grammys, to do this Tom Hanks. I consulted and was appeared in this Tom Hanks thing on the British Invasion. And this Beatles show, I would pay to have done those things if I could afford to do those things. And to get paid to do it, that's a dream. It's not like that all the time. There are times when I go, holy shit, you know, you get a host who you don't get along with or you get a show that you don't get or a subject matter that doesn't fucking interest you. It can be tough. But sometimes it's great. Like uh, like I just did a show called The Breakthrough Prize I mentioned in here with Kevin Spacey. And the fact that it was Kevin Spacey, it was a show about sponsored by like internet moguls about curing cancer. And I thought, well, this is going to be a hard thing to write. <laughs> and it ended up being great because Kevin Spacey wanted to do it for entertainment value. And he's amazing. So then back when you were doing more straightforward cover stories, features, interviews, all that yeah. kind of stuff, did you – I mean did you feel like that was where your talent lied? No. I, I, I think That's a I, different thing than what we're yeah, talking about. Yeah. I think I was really good at Q&As. 
if if truth be told, I think I was a B journalist. I was well respected by or liked by the artist because I clearly loved music and knew my stuff. And I think I did a good Q and A. As a profile writer, I maybe was a little too nice, and also, but I was ironically at a certain point, Jan asked me to also be the TV columnist. I had a TV column in Rolling Stone, and I was better at that because I didn't respect TV the way I respect music. I love music. I my life was shaped by wanting to. The only reason I write is because Bob Dylan and John Lennon and Elvis Costello, these guys in Westerberg, you know, over the years, they made me want to write in some way. And this is the only way I could pull it because I couldn't sing or anything like that. And uh, so, yeah, that's what I think. Uh, did you ever have problems? Because this would happen to me. It happened to me more than once. Um, where an editor pushed you to do something that you knew was going to piss the interview subject off. Yeah. For example, like turning in a story and then you get a call from the person who wants to pull something and your editor won't let it come out now. Yeah. Oh, no. I've had that. And uh, I will confess to my – yeah, oh, no, I won't confess. It will get someone else in trouble. Uh, I have um, – one time I can fuck think – that person? One time I can uh, – one time a major artist said something to me that would have fucked their life up in a big way because – and wow. I and I like a cheating kind of situation. I can't quite say what it was, but it was something that in the it domestic would them, realm. No, it would cause them huge trouble with the. I can't. I don't. Okay. Want to, I don't want to be specific, but okay. it's the that's one time in twenty years or whatever where I said, I'm going to give you ten seconds to tell me if you want to retract that statement because when that hits print, it is going to fucking make you <laughs> miserable. Yeah. And he said, I never said that, and that's the only time I could think I've broken any journalistic yeah now what virtue. were your feelings about that because i know that i there were times where i felt like okay my being a human being is running right his i'm at loggerheads with you know being a human being but then also being a journalist not to say that journalists can't be human beings but like i because i would have those instincts too like i don't think you want to be saying what you're saying and yet i know that there are these like just bloodthirsty paparazzi type journalists who would who would not let that stop them? Well, now I don't think anyone would let it stop them. And I'm not. I, I'm not. I, I don't think journalistically I did the right thing. I did the wrong thing. Okay. I was. And again, this is the downside of sticking around for twenty years. Some people you think or you believe become you friends with, and then that becomes complicated. And so that's one of the reasons I'm really not. I'd play a journalist on TV. I'm really not a journalist anymore. I'm. A writer, and usually I'm hired to write for the people, and that's it's been interesting because I sort of have gotten to know a lot of these people who were my heroes in a variety of ways. First, I met them interrogating them as a journalist, and then it sort of switched to being more collaborative in a certain way. And the ultimate example was Bob Dylan, who is my son is named you know middle name after him. He's my hero, and uh, <laughs> the first time he called me in for a meeting to collaborate sort of on something, and. He had just come from an interview with Rolling Stone, ironically, and he walked in and it was all of a sudden I saw the real him because people do not show journalists as a rule yeah. the real them or they often try not to. He he showed me the real him. He walked in and he went, fucking interviews. That was the first <laughs> thing he goes. He goes, still asking me why I went electric. How interesting. <laughs> and I thought, that's – OK. I'm one of those guys who – you know, has that on that list of like, let me ask you yeah. about going electric. And what I found is I'm 
you know, I may be too nice to be a really great journalist. And so I don't think I ever was a great journalist. Too nice or too deferential? Uh, uh, it's funny. Probably too deferential. Too much – I respect these people so much and I think a lot of those sort of better journalists are people who ultimately don't give a fuck. They want a good story more than they yeah. want anything else. I mean I always felt like writing about my very, very, very favorite bands was that – that was not going to be nearly as good as writing about someone that I didn't have the, that feeling about. Oh, yeah. No. The best piece I ever wrote was on New Kids on the Block. <laughs> you know, so – you know, and I would say – yeah, like my favorite artists, like people who I really grew up on, Petty. I don't know if those are my best stories. You know, I think the best stories are when you're a little looser. And mm-hmm. so now it's actually I, – I, I like the – I get a mix of things. I get to write liner notes for people. I get to write occasional journalistic piece. But that's what's nice about the new sort of blogging age, like Huffington Post. Half the time I don't wait for any – I mean, like the, I woke up and wanted to write about the Beatles in my life to promote – the show the other night, <clears throat> I just wrote for 15, 20 minutes because I am quick. Again, I'm not – like my wife said – Have you always been that fast? Yeah. I I Writing people – I mean I have a friend, Val, who introduced me to my wife sort of. Uh, and she goes – she couldn't believe when she met me because like I had to do a Bowie profile and I sort of forgot to do it. And then I wrote it in the car when she was driving, coming back from Santa Barbara. Like the piece I wrote basically on a car drive. So I'm – I am not – it comes very quickly to me because I'm a great believer. And in TV, that serves you well because it's like ultimately all you have to do is what should this person say here to get us from this to this? So you wouldn't like labor over how to start an article? I've never okay. – That was the most layperson yeah. speech. Labor over starting a lead. No, the ultimate example was the most important thing I ever feel like I'll write was that Tribute to Heroes and the open was Tom Hanks ironically. And uh, it was entirely based on – and half it is – listen – you got to listen to people. You'll hear things. And like when Joel Gallen, the executive producer, called to ask me to do the, be the head writer, he, my wife picked up and he goes, we're doing a telethon for 9-11. And my wife said, that's a horrible fucking idea. This is not about stars. This is not about celebrity. This is not – and she said this sort of rant. Mm-hmm. And I, that rant became what Tom Hanks said when that show – if you ever watch that show, we are not the heroes. We, you know, it was taking – her anger and transferring it into trying to make a statement of purpose about what we were Did doing. Did she still think you should do the show? No. In fact, one of the biggest fights we ever had was the day of the show, uh, there was a death threat called in, I think, to CBS Television City, or there was a rumor of one. And my wife said, "You, I forbid you to go to CBS Television City and do this show. And I remember think, I said, I am not going to Afghanistan. I'm going to down Fairfax, you know, and I'm going to do it. And I, the other about an hour later, I found myself in a room with Julia Roberts and uh, Clint Eastwood. And I remember uh, Julia Roberts turning to me and saying, David, what should we wear tonight? And I, uh, I looked over at Clint Eastwood who went, like, why well, should guys, we care what yeah. we should wear? And I called my wife and I said, friend, Julia Roberts just asked me fashion <laughs> advice. And I, I still treasure – even in 9-11, I had a chuckle. <laughs> And your wife got over the fact that you disobeyed her forbidding you? Yes. I Yes. I, I Mind you, I, I've never forbid her to do anything. But yes, she got over me uh, going against her will. Well, I imagine she was like, y- you have kids. You can't just do this, right? Right. Exactly. I'm not brave, clearly. I, <laughs> I wasn't doing anything heroic. I was writing a few words. How did you guys meet? Uh, 
I went to Orange County, the capital of Jordan, uh, Jewish religion, <laughs> for a high holiday with a friend, Val Van Gelder, who a film executive and all sorts of interesting things. And she was the girl next door. She was the little sister of her best friend. And we met. And then I told the story in Huffington Post this week about we went out for a few weeks. And then I went on the road with Paul McCartney. And Linda McCartney said, are you going out with anyone? I said, yeah, she's actually in town. I just met this girl. And she said, bring her to lunch. Bring her to sound check and lunch, which is a good fourth or fifth date. Yeah. Come to the McCartney sound check, which is better than a McCartney concert even. And uh, have lunch with Linda McCartney. And she pulled me aside and said, marry that girl now. And I went, what? And I had not how, thought of How old were you? 27, but emotionally 13. I never had thought about getting married mm-hmm. at all. And uh, she said, I, I mean, I come from a broken home, you know, uniquely in the world. <laughs> uh, a pretty, But it was a pretty badly broken home. It didn't leave me with a lot of interest in marriage. And... Uh, but I watched her and Paul, who had this amazing marriage and had these great relationship with their kids. And I, I, and she said, I said, huh? And she could tell me not like quite knowing how to respond. And she said, do you think I know something about marriage? And I went, yeah, I do. I noticed they had this ama- – I mean she kept a, a marriage together with Paul McCartney in the midst of all that mania. And uh, so it was actually – it's probably one of the reasons I got married to my wife and certainly that quickly – was because she told me to. <laughs> so yeah, so that's that's why when I got the picture of my wife showed me this picture of Paul with my boys, it was very kind of full circle to me. Mm-hmm. Um, how old were you when your parents divorced? Uh, fourteen, maybe fifteen, and it was yeah, it was just. I believe <laughs> I would like to research this. At one point, it was the longest divorce case in New Jersey history. Quite an honor. It was just very complicated, very. Very, very uh, ugly. I, I, I never talk about my bad childhood too much here because Adam sort of You'll has the bad childhood, uh, and I had sort of the opposite of him. I was sort of spoiled and coddled and given a big allowance. It was sort of the Jewish version of a bad childhood, <laughs> where I was just a spoiled, rotten kid. But my, yeah, it was it was bad. It was like we were the kids. There's a lot of like movies. Uh, there's certain films that capture it, but like being given checks to give mom from dad, you know, mm-hmm. the sort of being the messenger and all that. Being put in the awkwardness, middle. Awkwardness, yeah. Well, it so wasn't good. Talk about it. You can talk about it here because Adam's not in the room. Oh, no, it's okay. I mean, that, that's as much as it's probably interesting to anyone. No, but, no. Okay. I think, I think it's interesting. Yeah. Well, so what What was, um, I mean, what happened? Did, it, did you know they were headed for divorce your, your yes. whole life? Yeah, no, no. It was, you know, it's funny. It's just, uh, uh, my mom had uh, manic depression, which was not – didn't really get identified until that exact moment in history. And so it was sort of this mystery of like what the fuck was wrong that both of them grappled with. And their two personalities made it very painful to not – my dad is the – my dad was a great guy who was – loved to fix problems quickly. So it's sort of like maybe I inherited certain things – he loved any problem he could solve in 15 seconds. Like I remember telling him I wanted a stereo for college and he goes, we were driving past some stereo place in Paramus, New Jersey. And he goes, drove in, handed the guy his credit card, said $500. We'll be in the back. Get it ready. Like we didn't even look mm-hmm. at what it was. We just did it. And unfortunately, like mental health is not an issue. You can deal with exactly that quickly and uh, to be. Uh, and so uh, 
it was just one of those things where I think it was unfortunate that like drugs and things didn't come around until, and you know, my mom's doing done great for years, much, much better. Uh, but they were also just totally different people. Like my dad, like me slept three or four hours a night, uh, worked obsessively and my mom slept 14, 15 hours a day. Because so she was depressed? I think originally, yeah. No, I think. So so what was that like having a mom with manic depression? I mean, how does that manifest? Uh, it's It was it was rough. I mean, she was super – probably – interestingly, they both could write. Uh, my mom, I think, had she – she was a teacher early on. And I think – probably I don't think my dad encouraged her that much professionally. I think like a lot of guys that era probably wanted – their wife to be taken care of, whether their wife wanted to be taken care of or not. Uh, but she could write really well. I think both of them are probably better writers than I am. Uh, my dad wrote like Hemingway, brisk, short sentences, <laughs> like, you know, macho. He was a very much more of a guy than I was. I like real men. That's why I like Adam. I'm, <laughs> uh, I just don't relate to them. Uh, but my mom wrote really like Fitzgerald, like really wow. flowery, really beautiful writing. So I think I got a love of writing from both of them. But, you know, it, it, but it's very interesting. When my dad was dying, uh, he had remarried and it was crazy like things tend to get at the end of lives. And, you know, I remember talking to my mom and she said, I'll take care of him. Like, and you realize it was like – and it was both sad and really beautiful. Like the thought – I think a lot of times those first people that I, – I think about – I only had one – I've only had one marriage. But those first marriages, it's like interesting. Like, I think there's often like a genuine connection that can get lost in a long relationship. You know, long relationships get complicated. But yeah. it was nice to me that at the end she would have happily taken care of him at the end. Yeah, that's sweet. Um, but they were both they were both great. My mom still is, but they were great. Uh, they were they're great people. But it was interesting because it didn't leave me with a sense that marriage was a good thing. And my wife comes from the opposite, uh, you know, still together, the most tightly knit family in the world. And for me, it's like great because that's one thing you'll find when – I don't know. Do you get along with his – your in-laws? I do, yeah. One thing that I found was that I didn't necessarily anticipate it, but losing my dad, to have a stepfather, it's just actually really great to have someone patriarchal mm-hmm. that you can turn to and talk to or just watch the Super Bowl with your kid – and someone much like to have multiple generations, we spend an amazing amount of time with her family more than she wants to, <laughs> but less than I want to because I like I'm having comforted that, yeah. by having something. I mean, that's like what Friends was about. You try to create a family however you can in show business. All these crazy shows they create little families that they get to get like the Grammys. We're like a dysfunctional family that gets together annually, and we're super close and spend you know. December and January together in February and then, you know, might not see each other for a year. So it's all a search for family, I think. Mm -hmm. Let's do Just Me or Everyone. But first, I want to tell everyone about the no-no. It's a new year. Time for a new you. Stop spending money and and time on uh, on expensive laser hair treatment removal appointments and waxing and all of that, which is painful and messy and inconvenient. The no-no is uh, this device. It's about the size of a cell phone, totally portable, safe to use on your body and your face. um, And you just glide it along your skin and it removes the hair and it's got this little LED readout so it tells you uh, whether you're doing it right or doing it wrong and it's, it's easy to get to to 
get it going and to use it correctly. And by the way, they told me it was painless and I was still afraid, but I conquered my fears and I did it. And not only is it painless, but you really don't even feel it at all. I didn't feel it at all. So you get weeks of long-lasting results. Uh, No more nicks, cuts, ingrown hairs. It works on all skin types, all hair colors, safe and effective for men and women. So if you guys want the no-no, you should take advantage of a special exclusive offer just for my listeners. Go to nonobestfriend.com or call 800-508-4815. Again, that's nonobestfriend.com or call 800-508-4815. Here is what you get. You get the no-no device. You get an exclusive facial kit so you can use it on your uh, not only on your body but also to remove facial hair. You get a super snazzy travel case and the entire purchase is backed by their triple guarantee. If you're not 100% satisfied, they'll refund the purchase price, refund the shipping and even pay for you to ship it back to them so you don't risk a penny to try the no-no. Terms and conditions may apply. Okay. Say Let's, yes, yes th- yeah. to no-no. Oh, that's so good. I'm giving that them. That's free. That's so good. You totally did it in their voice. I see what you're saying <laughs> that's now. Exactly. I, I listened to hard. You're... <laughs> I had emotional – I had a breakthrough memory during this conversation. Oh, Can do I share, share it? Please, please. I remember – I didn't uh, – I haven't gone to shrinks much in my life. But uh, at one point in my life, like I went through my first breakup and I was a mess uh, more than ever. And uh, I went to a guy who my – like my dad trying to solve the problem got me to the best shrink in New York, like a world-famous shrink. And I sat with him for a couple of times and then – he said, anything you want to know? I said, yeah, you think I'm a manic depressive? And he went, no, nope, you're absolutely not. And I went, you're just going to tell me that like definitively? <laughs> he goes, yeah. I go, how do you know? He goes, I'm the world's foremost authority and you're not. And I walked out of there and it was the best thing. So it was, you know, That's nice. I always like him for that. Yeah, I had at one point in therapy, I remember I was just, I was worried, what if I go crazy one day? What if I just like lose my marbles and just start hearing things? Or and right. I didn't that nothing like that had happened, but it was just this sort of free floating anxiety I had of what if I just lose it? And I remember a therapist saying, "I, I, you're not going to go crazy. Like I know you. You don't have that in you." So, um, but, but then I didn't sail off into the sunset. I just kept going back every week. See, but you're. In, I I brought it up the other day. The the not knowing your Jewish thing is fascinating to me because I am not religious, but I am obsessive cultural commentator on mentioning what my Jewishness. And I think it's fascinating to not know something about yourself for years. It's sort it's, of it's, it, it's a weird feeling. Yeah, it it's creates weird. a sense of like, what don't I know? Yeah, which but it doesn't manif- yes, but it didn't manifest as what else don't I know about myself. It was what else are my parents lying to me about? Um so yeah, I think the probably like the final piece of this that I haven't really made peace with well, there's a lot about it I haven't made peace with, but a, an element – I mean a lot of it's just been working out the relationship with my parents and sort of coming to terms with I was raised to – because there was this extra level of my parents always saying – or my dad specifically that he would never – you never lie to your kids because if you lie to them and they find out, <clears throat> then they won't know if they can ever trust you. I right. was raised to believe that, which was like this sort of – uh, it's almost like he was covering his tracks. Right. So the then, grand irony. Yeah, and then that you know became a self fulfilling prophecy. But I think yeah, sort of the, the thing that I really haven't worked out is assimilating it into just my definition of myself and what that means. I mean, like now I know I'm you know I know I'm Jewish, but what does that really mean? I don't I don't really I don't feel it or know it in the way that I feel like I should, and I don't know how to. Did either your parents 
get the shit kicked out of them for being Jewish at some point in their childhood? I mean, not my mom. Um, my dad probably. He grew up in Brooklyn. It was pretty um, – you kind of hung with your own kind and there's a lot of anti-Semitism. And I don't know. I don't know to what degree he experienced it firsthand. I don't know if he ever – really got the shit kicked out of him. I mean, I think there were a lot of street fights and things, you know, back then, but I don't know. I, I think you should know. have him on and just discuss this. Ugh. Be a good show. I feel like all he would talk about is sweaters and bags. <laughs> that, that is a reference to. Uh, the garment trade has always been important to our people. <laughs> that and your thief mailman. That's right, yeah. My dad goes, he, could, he does a lot of shtick and bits. It's hard to get, like, it's hard to get him to be himself on air. But, Once again, at Allison's parents on Twitter. Yeah, just you, look at – You really should be. His tweets are very amusing. Um, yeah. No, I mean I feel like I need to sit down with him and and even off air have like a real conversation about this because I still – in the way that I like to get people to sort of take me from A to B to C to D, you know, with this one, I, I don't know that I really have a clear sense of that. It's just like now we all know we're Jewish and we talk about it. Well, can I tell you? Whereas back it, then we didn't. It would be a documentary. That's your documentary that you should do. It's a great story. I've thought about that. I've thought about the because you were asking me have I ever written about it? Yeah. And I have, and I haven't. I mean, I've I've made reference because you know. Do you know about that story where I accidentally dated the skinhead yes, white yes. pride guy? Yes, we've all been there. Yeah. For every skinhead, right, sister, I, I know. Yeah. Um, but. So I've written about that and I mention it in there, but I haven't really tackled it head on. Like I haven't written my whatever the word is for a Jewish coming of age story. Well, I think the thing that I've learned. My Old Testament. I've had a weird – again, my weird career takes me into places like literally from the White House to like the Beatles, all this. And I figure what the common denominator I picked up in, almost everything comes down to mommy and daddy issues. Like if you get to know people – it's like that's what it's all about. Like I can think of big rock stars who changed their religion based on a religion, you know, switching over to a religion their dad hated. Uh, or I can Is think that of – Cat Stevens? Uh, I'm not saying. <laughs> I can think of, uh, you know, being around the president, being around Clinton a few, little bit. I saw a little bit and you go, OK, this is a kid who didn't have a dad figure and who probably thought John F. Kennedy was the way for a guy to be. So what happens? He gets to the White House. And he becomes a Kennedy. You know, he. Do, it's. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it is the absent daddy issues and absent mommy issues. You know, it's so many big superstars are these stories where they think their mother is their sister, or they think their sister is their mother. So many people who are driven in life, Chinatown. it's fueled by that kind of stuff. I think. Well, so, okay. So using that own logic on you, what is your what drives you? Do you think? Um. The need for validation and love, not just for parking, but in all uh, things. Uh, to to be allowed into those rooms that not everyone can go into. I, I think honestly, the truth is, I loved entertainment. I loved music because it spoke on a deep emotional level to me, literally. So that it's like my whole life. So the first records I listened to that were actually not even Beatles; they were like John Lennon and. Paul McCartney records, and I'm still talking about how much that stuff means to me. I mean, up to last night, that's what I've been doing with my life, and I'm lucky because, you know, it's an amazing. I I tweeted it at Wild about music last night. It is an honor to honor your heroes, and I'm lucky. I have a lot of heroes. Some people don't like a lot. I think I'm blessed professionally and personally 
to really be a fanboy for in music. I just the artist I love, I love. I can spend my lifetime. Do you them. stay? Uh, do you continually find new music to love? Yes, and I'm lucky that by doing you know all sorts of shows that you know like the Grammys are a great way for me to you know I'm literally still in the thick of what's going on in music, but we always are mingling the past and the present. Truth be told, the most exciting moments are always anything, and I think this is true for most people, the biggest stars to you are are the people who were stars when you were 11 or 12. So it's like the Beatles are still a bigger deal to me than anyone else. Uh, Mick Jagger calling me and saying, David Love, I'd love you to write some liner notes. That was a thrill in a way that it wouldn't be. I love Chris Martin from Coldplay, but it wouldn't do the same thing. Even Bono wouldn't do the same thing. So it's all, I met one of my, Hero Bill Withers, who was a great singer-songwriter. I never met him because he sort of dropped out of music when I was before I got there. It's all I met him at the forum and spent like an hour and a half talking to him, asking every question I ever had. And he was like, "How the hell do you know so much?" And it's like because I was that kid reading lyrics on records, trying to figure life out. And I think that's what a lot of us do. That was always one of my favorite things: falling in love with a song. And because I would, it was the music that would get me first. Right. But then, you know, just hunkering down with the lyrics and figuring out what does this mean. No, and for me, it took the next step of reading every history about them, every fact, to the point where there was a whole period in my life where I would be arguing with people about what was true about their life. And I was almost always right. <laughs> I remember arguing with McCartney in uh, Buenos Aires. I remember arguing with Neil Diamond in. Uh, West Hollywood, I remember, I mean, where it's like, no, you wrote a third song for the monkeys. They just didn't put it out. You know, and he goes, no, I did Got to a, like a real, you know, Elvis Costello, who was my biggest childhood sort of high school hero, our first interview, we got into a huge fight, you know, and it's like, because I, and I knew more about their lives than they did, because they were high. <laughs> and they were, or they were, funny. or they were busy actually being geniuses, and I was not. I was in my room having little else to do than to read every detail of their life. Well, see, now, what do you make of, Adam always talks about how every journalist gets every detail wrong of anything, and that makes him distrust news stories because he knows how much they just fuck up all the details of his own life. But you're saying you knew all the details because, you know, you had read everything. So obviously that was true. What do you make of all this? He's right in general. I believe, uh, I don't think there's a premium on being right anymore. And I'm being correct. There's a premium on being most salacious or most negative or most nasty. I mean, but, are there fact checkers anymore? I, I Not think, in the way there were, I right? I think it's all gone by the wayside. And I think we're in for a world of hurt journalistically because as they cut back on all that, you know, the internet has survived on a Google or whatever, survived on stealing content. Yeah. But once all these magazines with fact checkers are gone, it's just going to be shit being vomited up Upon shit. Yeah, it I mean, for, mean anything. for people that don't know, and why would you know the fact checking process? After you would turn in a story, you would have to. So a fact checker would go through it and they would flag everything that qualified as a fact, which meant spellings of names, right. just everything. And then you, as the writer, would have to supply just all the sort of evidence, the right. proof of anything you had claimed. And it was oftentimes really laborious and tedious. But it was good. Yeah, I mean, it's good they had it, but yeah. I would, God, if you had an editor who was up your ass, sometimes you would end up having to call the person and say, you said you were eating chicken. 
Was Do you recall, chicken? was it a wing or was it a drumstick? I remember so, – I feel like Or it was, was it someone, a breast? That yeah. would be the fun sort of right, turn on. Exactly. Part. No, it was someone from, I think, Sebado or something was like, why is this important? I was like, oh it's my – I've got an asshole up my ass. I, I just think journalism went from like this erudite <laughs> world to uh, – I, I, when I bought our house, Britney Spears around bought, moved in around the same time and that was when she was being – Shaving her head off and being oh, yeah. chased around, and our neighborhood was fucking disaster because it was all uh, paparazzi's all over Mulholland, you know, stopping trying to get her. It happened again today. I drove past. I think there's a singer who's pregnant, a big singer who lives in the neighborhood, and so the paparazzi are beginning to gather again. And like, who who is this pregnant singer? Uh, I have no doubt. You can figure out who it is. Okay. I feel like no, no that doubt. was a hint. Gotcha. No doubt. I my I my cover story on them uh, was I was told the inspiration for "Don't Speak," which is not a good thing to claim. What? But yeah, so I wrote the first national cover story about "No Doubt." Can you link to that on this page? That would be. I cool. probably could. It was in this magazine, Access Magazine, which is no longer around. Oh yeah, cool. Um, and what they did is it's it's weird to claim anything of a music trivia sort in front of you, though, because I feel like you're going to be like, no, the first national story about them was something else. No. And this is just like something that I've known forever. Okay. So it was the first national cover story about No Doubt in this magazine called Access Magazine, which is a glossy national magazine. Did the photo shoot, and then they blew up Gwen really big and made right. the band members small in the Fade background. Away, yes. Yeah, which they did not appreciate that much. And then that became sort of the plot for the Don't Speak video. Right. Um so happy you to have a hand career. in that. <laughs> you got, do you have points on that song? You should. I don't. I should. Um, but 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 they were. I I saw the aforementioned singer at the Video Music Awards uh, like a year later or something, and I reminded her who I was, and uh, and she's like, oh, well, I have to hug you because we love that story. So they love the story. I don't think they appreciated the photo situation, but that's interesting. Mm-hmm. No, I. The weird thing is having sort of ventured away from journalism a little bit into this. TV world, you get to do things that are people love you for. Like, you know, I just talked to uh, or got a text from Brad Paisley, who I sort of pulled into this show the other night, last night, and then and it's great because you can actually think, okay, can you get here by tomorrow because I want you to play this solo on this? Or in the case of No Doubt, I don't know those guys that well, uh, but we did a tribute to uh, uh, Joe Strummer when he died on the Grammys, which was. One of the greatest things we ever did, it was with Bruce Springsteen and Elvis Costello, and we needed a bass player. And Ken Ehrlich said, who would be good? And I said, well, Tony is great from No Doubt. And again, because it was that point where Gwen was getting all the attention. Mm -hmm. So for Tony to be in this number with Dave Grohl and Bruce Springsteen and Elvis, and I remember him like going afterwards, like crying, going, this is like the greatest thing. Thank you so much. He was a a lovely guy. Yeah, he's great. Um, Okay, we should do Just Me or Everyone, but I want to just quickly, five seconds – well, how did you get into writing about TV? Like, what was your first TV thing? Rolling Stone did a special in 1994. Uh, I was out here as the West Coast bureau chief, and they did a Rolling Stone special where I had to interview off camera, way off camera, all these big stars like uh, Howard Stern, Steven Spielberg, uh, all sorts of big people. Winona Ryder, ironically. And uh, the executive producer was Joel Gallen, who said, you're making these people laugh. Why don't you write jokes for the MTV Awards, which I do? And that was it. He he started hiring me. And then Kenner, like a couple of years later, said, why don't you do the Grammys? And then it became a life somehow. Nice. All right. Now let's do just me or everyone. Sometimes I ponder. 
Right. Alan Gambrell says, just me or everyone, when I receive email or text responses, I reread my original message as if to review and rate my effectiveness, like looking before you flush. <coughs> yes, I do that too. I never really thought about that. I don't know why I do it, but I often do it. You guys? Uh, not so much on text. Because, well, because usually it's just right there. Yeah. I mean, and usually like I'm not getting a response to a question hours or days later, but with an email – I'll very often go back and reread the chain to make sure I know what I'm answering. Yeah. Chris? I'm I'm with Gary. Emails. Uh, I'll reread the conversation. David Wilde? I'm such a bad texter. I'm not good at putting in people's – like saving my contacts. So a lot of times numbers come up. I don't know who that is. And uh, I actually – for this Beatles show, I texted Brad Paisley like the week before the show. Hey, would you come and do something with Pharrell? Can you get out of – can you get here in time? And his wife, who I accidentally texted, not him. So we almost had Kimberly Williams Paisley playing with uh, Pharrell. So it's like I'm bad. I don't reread. I've never gone back and – I do that with email, yes, when I've fucked up. Because I – one of the big things in my world is like on a show where there's a million people, everybody – there's those chains that you realize you've said way too much for the 80th person on the on the email chain. Uh, oh, Yeah. I received one of those recently. Yes. Uh, okay. Andy Straithman says, just me or everyone hate when American people use a Spanish accent when referring to something Spanish. Do they use a Boston or Texas accent the same? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I find that a little much. No, I'm saying I use a Boston accent oh. anytime I'm talking about Boston. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it, wh- like, what would you say b- the big dig with a Boston accent? I mean, no, well, no. It's like NPR. It's, it's the NPR phenomenon of like, today in Nicaragua. That. It's yeah. Like people do I, that. Oh, I, right. But I'm just saying, how, what would be this, the Boston equivalent? So I was going to have it. Like, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. I, I agree with this guy, though. I, yeah. I'll give some leeway to people who are bilingual. Like, I have, like, my roommate's dating a, a Mexican girl and she speaks fluent Spanish. So when she says guacamole, sometimes it comes out with a I little bit. I love that you're of, only giving her some leeway. <laughs> no, no, I give her I give her all the leeway in the world because she's because I feel like that's a product of speaking that other language. Yes. Right. Like if you moved to France and spoke France, you'd probably still say Gary without a French accent. Yeah. Like you raise your eyebrow. Do you like well, this French life you, I've, I, I painted for you? I thought you said if you move to France and speak France. Oh, did I say that? I think so. You said that. <laughs> that was why my eyebrows went up. I didn't even hear what you said France. after that. <laughs> right. Oh, oh, anyway. Chris, thoughts? I, I find a lot of people do it when they say hot sauces. Like, oh, I'll have some tapatio. <laughs> or, uh, or that, that's see, that made my really skin hear. crawl. <laughs> David Wilde? I would never do that. Um, see, my friends studied in Chile, and that's how they would always refer to where they studied abroad, and it just made me want to avoid the whole discussion of it. Yeah. I, the one, another one that bugs me is when people put a, like a, a weird emphasis on Los Angeles. Los Angeles? Like, Los Angeles. <laughs> like, shut the fuck up. Like, I'm sorry. If you want to say something that is derived from your original language and it comes out differently, sweet. It reminds me of uh, – you may have noticed I work with a lot of diverse individuals. I've from, noticed. And like one thing I will not put up with, I've had in the past like producers who've said, can you make this sound really black? And I'm like, fuck you. I don't I, – you know, I, I'm not insulting – you know any of these great guys I work with because they're it's like because you feel like it'll just come off yeah. racist. Oh, the you know I mean 
despite the fact that every sitcom we both grew up on was written by you know a bunch of Jewish guys writing for black characters, mm-hmm. I don't do that. I you know I write for people, and people can say it the way they want to say it. All right. Biscuit says, <laughs> just me or everyone, when a TV is on in, in a public place with the volume up and subtitles on, I can't help but read the subtitles. Anyway, yes, I've said it before. I enjoy subtitles. They hold my attention more and sometimes I can't hear. Yeah, absolutely. I watched a, an entire movie on the way to wherever you and I went last time with the subtitles on just because I realized I could. Yeah. I, I do read the subtitles first, but I don't like to because I feel it steps on the performance. It steps on the joke. Yes, it steps- if it's a com, actually, that is the exception. Comedies are better without the subtitles because it's – and also Jeopardy subtitles sometimes give away the answer. Because yeah. I read faster than they'll, they'll speak it, so yeah. I, I don't like it. Yeah, but anything that's not comedy, I like the subtitles. Biscuit is a wise man. I, he's tapped into something. I, I – I've done that. I do that. And in fact, after the Grammys this year, because we were doing the Beatles show the next night, I went to Katsuya with a producer on the show, Terry Lacona, and we sat at the bar and they were showing the Grammy broadcast because it was delayed to the West Coast and it had subtitles right in front of me. And it was bizarre because I was reading words I'd written. (laughs) I don't usually do that. Liz says, if I accidentally use my shower products out of their usual order, I have to start the sequence over from the beginning. No, however, wow, just mirror everyone. I have an order for how I use my shower products. <laughs> uh, I have an everyone? order for soap. <laughs> and, Wait, wow. you're saying you don't have a whole system for the shower? No, like not that's that regimented. Oh, I bet you do it. This my hunch would be that you actually do it the same way every time. No, because if you don't, you'll forget. No, because something. I'm thinking. About, no, I have I'm two think- things. I only I have three because I like will. Like shave in the shower, but I don't. It doesn't necessarily go in the same way. But I mean, you don't have an order of because like I get in and then I wet my hair and then I shampoo my hair and then I rinse that out and like I I mean I've got my whole like and then I wash this and I do this and then I no no you just like willy nilly wash whatever and get on out. Yeah, (laughs) you don't always start with a certain part of your body. I do. I just didn't realize it, but yeah. I guess I start with shampoo, but like after that, all bets are off. But how do you remember then if you washed? Your balls. You can smell them later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You'll know. All right. David Wilde? Clearly, I don't have any system whatsoever. It just happens. Maybe it's just a lady thing. I, I call the glam squad in and this, this is done. <laughs> this is what it, comes they, out they, the other end. Exactly. They pull it together <laughs> and a miracle is achieved. Jackie says, I love wearing hats. but It I takes have- a village to make <laughs> this happen. But a I- blind village of idiots. <laughs> Jackie says, I love wearing hats, but I often wind up with a headache at the end of the day. Just me. That's how I am with like a ponytail or putting my hair up or things like that. Um, that hats, guys. Yeah. You do get a hat headache. Sure. But I, I think that's largely because I refuse to wear anything but a fitted hat and they don't necessarily always fit the best. I don't know. Chris, well, my, I never my, see you in hats really, do I? Me? I don't think I do. I, I wear hats a lot. Maybe I, I do. I wear, I wear I a couple times Chris a week. in hats more often than me. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I think I've hardly ever seen you in a hat. Gary. Yeah, you haven't, which is ironic. And my friends all make fun of me because there's thirty or forty hats on the wall in my room. Oh, really? Yeah, I went through a phase. <laughs> yeah, what I don't like is my my hair gets flat, matted down, and then when I take it off, the re- like my hair it hurts my head. Like kind of yes. like when you wear like socks, and then well, I guess you 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 don't know because you're a girl, but like the hair in your legs when it gets folded down. And then they move after you take off your socks. It like hurts your leg. That this similar thing happens is a real ponytail issue. 
If you have your hair like in a ponytail all day and you take it out, the hair, it hurt, feels like it starts to grow in that direction and then yeah. it hurts. David Wilde, you're wearing a hat right now. I wear hats a lot. And uh, in fact, I thought about this uh, for this Tom, this 60s British invasion show. I was told, you can't wear a hat. And I took off my hat. And, uh, you know, if Tom Hanks and Gary Getzman tell you to take off your hat, you do. And then I watched the friggin' show. And another writer, Michael Gilmore, was no. wearing like a giant hat like he was Pharrell, like a Pharrell's <laughs> hat. So I felt a little ripped off. But ironically, it's like funny because uh, I now get recognized more the last few weeks without my hat because the show is go. out there. CNN is rearing it constantly. Alexander Perry says, the first two bites of my sandwich are each front corner so that my third bite in the middle fits in my mouth perfectly. Um, I don't do that, but I like it. Yeah, I do that with burgers sometimes. The corner of the burger? No, like I'll just – I'll strategically, instead of keeping going where I started, I'll just like move over so that the third bite is going to leave me with half a burger. Yeah, I do the corners. And when I eat burgers, I cut it in half so I can get the, the mm. corners. Well, that's true. I guess, that, I guess this would only apply to like an In-N-Out burger that I wouldn't cut in half because I don't have the utensils. David Wilde? The theme continues. I have no system whatsoever. Just a – you know, a mad rush. All right. If you're taking a bite of someone else's sandwich, what are the rules for that? Because oftentimes they'll hand you their sandwich, ask if you – they'll say, say, do you want a bite? You'll say, sure. Hand you a sandwich. And there's one bite that's clearly better than the others, but I always feel wrong taking it. So then I just go for like the real lettucey bite, which is – No. Anyone who's offering you a bite of your sandwich, you have license to do the hell what you please. Yeah, but you go – I go I go 75 to 80 percent of my bite. I don't do a full 100 percent because I do big, big, big bites. Yeah. So right. I, you hold, we want to hold back a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, same here. You mean someone's sandwich that they will give you a bite of and then you will continue eating the sandwich? Yeah, like you, if I had a sandwich, like a ham sandwich, I'd say, hey, Dave, do you, do you want I a have never, I've never had a bite of anyone else's sandwich. I would never. Do of it. anyone else's what? I would, never, I would never take a bite of anyone else's sandwich. I would want – if they offered you a half, that in there. I've taken the half. I noticed that too. That Was it just me or everyone we received actually? Did you see that what recently? Was that? What, did I do? what did I say? You said – You said sandwich. sandwich. Oh, it's one of those eight words that my wife would say, Jersey. Yeah. It's like a Jersey thing. What are the other seven? Drawer. <gasps> I say drawer badly. We talk about – how do you say it? You say it normally. He said, no, he said drawer. 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 He's slurring through it. Okay. Uh, those are the ones that come to mind. Sandwich and drawer. How do you say the thing that you rest your head on at night on your bed? Pillow. Okay, that's normal. Where do you park your car? Uh, at your house. In the garage? Yep. No, you know what's funny? I, I don't think I have an accent. And we didn't either. No, but then weirdly, and my sister, if you if you talk to my sister, she would go, uh, oh, my God, like Long Island, and she's from New Jersey. I don't think I betray my Jersey past, except my wife says the tells are like drawer and sandwich. Huh, yeah. My dad, you hear it on water, like woulda, only a few words. Did you purposefully try to get rid no, of your accent? No, not at you all. Just, you just shed no. it? I think of myself as having no, not, not a voice that has no interest and then uh, it was Stevie Wonder when he's on the Grammys and I write for him once. Often I have to read into it Mike and back to him. And he actually mimics. Not only does he repeat the words, <laughs> but he mimics the voice. And I've people said, why is Stevie Wonder impersonating you? And I'm like, how can anyone impersonate me? I don't have a distinctive vocal style at all. But apparently I must more than I Maybe that's care. what he's doing an impression of. A voice with no distinctive style. Exactly. A boring white guy. <laughs> T Millionaire says, is it just me or does everyone feel betrayed if someone insists on touching a door you're holding open for them? No, I don't. I don't. Just you. Yeah. 
Chandler. No. That's not any of our Chandlers. Oh, well, we have met this Chandler, though. Yes. He came here. But that's not Randy. No. <laughs> just me or everyone. New hardcover books. I immediately throw away the plastic cover. It just gets in the way. Also looks classier on the shelf. No, I need that um, extra flap to be sort of a bookmark. The plastic cover would be a library book. You mean yeah. the, the flip, I think he flap. means the yeah. paper cover. Yes. That's what I'm assuming he means. Yeah, I think that's what he means. I agree. I, I, I assume that's what he meant, too. My mother-in-law has a system that I now do, which is she takes books on vacation. I don't like reading on devices like my wife will. I like to take a book and rip it off in sections and throw it in the garbage so that it gets thinner through the trip. I've and I sweet. Have I seen you do this or just have I seen other people do this? You've seen other people. You've never seen me. But I do it and I learned it from Carol Turk, my beautiful mother-in-law. It's a great it, it's a sense of accomplishment, ripping books off. Can you do this with a hardcover? I'm man enough to do that. That's, that's exactly how macho I am. Oh, that's like in lieu, of, in lieu of kicking ass or playing football in high school, I can rip any fucking paperback or hardcover. The books should be perforated. And you could just rip them, rip the pages off and just throw them out. Exactly. I kind of like that idea even though it's destroying a book. I'm badass. My parents' version of this is that when they finish reading a book or like once they've both read it once or something, they'll, then they'll throw them away because it does look better on the shelf. But my mom insists on keeping them on for the bookmark thing. Yeah. Brian Holt says, and I don't know if this is the jo- I'm assuming this is a it's joke. A joke. <laughs> it's pretty funny, though. Autocorrect is sometimes more of a bourbon than it's worth. See what he did there? I did. Yeah, yeah I like that. Watch out, David Wilde. <laughs> um, His name isn't even no, Brian that's, that's Holt. It's Brian Holt. That's that? not that bad, by the way. I should, that was me. Sorry. Oh, you thought it was Sorry, a Brian. bad good, pun good, like good, me? Good effort. But in truth, it is sometimes a real pain in the butt. Sure. When but it, it keeps, makes for, but it makes for hilarious internet yes. blog articles of, you know, that is true of damn you autocorrect, right? And the, there's nothing more shaming than you entering a word and autocorrect doesn't get it right because it, you're you're the what you entered is you're so, not even close is so far off. Yeah, yeah. By, by the way, Apple needs to fucking wake up and stop trying to autocorrect the letter K. I am or, or wait, wait, no, sorry, I fucked that up. Uh, yo, like it autocorrects yo to something else. Hmm. Yeah, it's all over the place. Yo would be one of the top ten phrases on a text, I would imagine. Yeah. Don't you think? Yeah. I keep having a – I'm having an iPhone problem where uh, capital A's – all my A's seem to be – not all of them, but I don't know what's happening where the A is capital. Um, Do you know what I mean? Like in the middle – like because the A will be capital. Really? Yeah, I think I'm hitting something. You, Maybe you I'm must hitting be like hitting the, the, cap, the shift button like shift. as you hit A because they're right there. Yeah. But they're redesigning. That's a real problem that I'm having with my iPhone. They're redesigning the shift button. They the are. software that's coming out. So my problem with the iPhone is I tweet way too fucking much. That's my problem. Everyone should follow you at Wild About Music. I've advertised that I tweet way too much. Yeah. But yes, please. Find out for yourself how annoying it might be. Well, David Wilde, thank you so, 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 so much for doing right. this um, show. No, I'm so happy to be here. This was super fun. So everyone can follow you on at Wild About Music and anything else that you want to tell them to check out? Uh, well, no. That's good. All right. That's just, just, just. Dandy. I just go to uh, iTunes and give Allison's show high marks. That's all I want. Thank and you. And support. No, no, and legal Zoom because those people make this possible. That's right. And if you're going to be shopping on Amazon, which you are because they have everything, click through the banner on my website at alisonrosen.com. Doesn't cost you anything extra, but it does help out the show. We have a ringtone that's available. Hey, hey, hey. 
fuck yourself. Been hearing a lot of hey, go fuck yourself chatter on Twitter lately. Someone, like, I got a tweet that said someone's new catchphrase. I don't know if there's a show that's using this as their catchphrase or maybe they're just telling it to a lot of people. But anyway, it's about to take off, you guys. You need the ringtone now and you can get that. Wasn't that Webster's catchphrase? <laughs> it, was, it was something like that, yes. I think so. You can get that. It was adorable. But a little, little African-American little- child says it. Like a so midget. Cute. It's adorable. Those are Jewish people writing it, though. <laughs> yes, exactly. When when little Jews wrote for the little black kid, it's amazing. Uh, and you can get that by searching "Hey, go fuck yourself" on your iPhone in the iTunes Store. And lastly, we have a special bonus episode that is available. We, we did it live at the LA Podcast Festival with Doug Benson and Matt Costa and Chris and Gary and Matt and me. Uh, and the genesis of the butter sandwich discussion, you can hear that on this episode. If that doesn't mean anything to you, which it might not, it just means that you don't listen to the Thursday show very often. But uh, a lot of heated butter sandwich debate, and that all started on this episode, as well as a lot of other things we refer to. So really, if you're a fan and you don't have this episode, what you, are you doing? you got to get those episodes because they're kind of like you know documentaries on survivors of the Holocaust, except it's Adam Carolla instead of the Holocaust. I mean, you know, it's, it's I wouldn't have line. used those words, but line. sure. Thank you for helping me to push push this show. Um, but it's not as um, no, it Somber? is. It's as dramatic. Yes, it's a, it's a little. It's a little more light, but you know, there's, there's drama. Funnier. There's a there's funnier than the conflict. Holocaust. Thank you. I feel like we should have just titled it that. You can put that in an ad. <laughs> funnier than the Holocaust. Um, and you can get that in the comedy album section of the iTunes Store. You can follow me on Twitter at Allison Rosen. You can follow the show's Twitter feed at A-R-I-Y-M-B-F. You can follow Gary at G. Patrick Smith. And for Chris, where should we go? I'll just get that show. It's funnier than the Holocaust. <laughs> thank you. All right. Is there anything I'm leaving out? I don't think so. All right. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you again, David Wilde. Thank you, Allison. All right. Thank you for listening. I love you guys. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen Show?
This is Corolla Digital. Once again, this episode was sponsored by LegalZoom.com. Visit LegalZoom.com to save on your legal, legal needs, like wills for $69, LLCs for $99 plus filing fees, and also get access to a network of legal plan attorneys for guidance. LegalZoom is not a law firm, but provides self-help services at your specific direction. Enter discount code Allison for more savings at LegalZoom. That's discount code Allison.